Hi, everyone. I'm Maria with TopBots. Thank you for tuning in to our AI for Growth Executive Education Series, where we interview the top technology and business leaders who are applying AI and machine learning to their enterprises. So today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Max Sklar from Foursquare. So Max, I'd love it if you told our audience a bit more about yourself and how you first got into AI. Hi, Maria. Thanks for having me on the program. Uh, I guess to start with my story, um, my, you know, my journey to Foursquare to AI machine learning was really the intersection of uh, two interests that I had. Um, I worked as a software engineer here in New York for a few years, and then you know, I went to grad school and I really discovered machine learning and natural language processing when I was there, and I was really fascinated um, on a theoretical level by the idea of, you know, these really interesting problems because we don't just have, you know, we're not solving something where we know how to program the computer directly. We're trying to figure out, okay, the machine is trying to figure out the model on its own. And that was really, really fascinating to me. And I wanted to sort of discover, you know, ways in which uh, these techniques can be used in the real world. But at the same time, you know, I had this interest in local search and maps going way back to uh, you know, when I was an undergrad and I had a website called stickymap.com back in 2005, 2006. And it was just when the Google Maps API started coming out. And so I built kind of a map Wikipedia type situation where people would post little markers on the map and um, add little messages at different locations. And I thought it was really cool that everyone was using that. And so when I discovered Foursquare, uh, I saw it all come together and I was able to work on a product like this while also applying, you know, machine learning NLP to various parts of the business and of the product. So I started out, you know, working on Foursquare's local recommendation engine to figure out, okay, where are the best places in the city? And then I worked on venue ratings, trying to figure out which places are good and which places are not so good. And then I worked on a product called Marsbot, which is Foursquare's chatbot. And now I'm applying uh, AI or machine learning essentially to one of our uh, B2B business applications, Attribution, which we'll talk about in a bit, um, uh, to try to you know build that out as smart as possible. And in the last few months, I started a podcast called uh, The Local Maximum, and you know I talk to people in AI and machine learning every week. I mean, sometimes we talk about more general pro uh, topics in uh, tech and entrepreneurship, um, but it's been a lot of fun. I've been able to kind of uh, talk to a lot of interesting people and network with a lot of interesting people. Absolutely. I love the title of that particular podcast. And we've even talked about my book on there. So we'll definitely yeah. be including a link in the article that accompanies this video series. I know for a fact at least one person bought your book based on Oh, that's on wonderful. They okay. emailed me. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Um, so let's go back to this problem that you were talking about, which is B2B attribution. Yeah. So attribution is the bane of marketers. And you spoke yeah. earlier about how machine learning can be used to solve problems that we don't know how to explicitly code ourselves. So I know you've been thinking about this problem for a really long time. Can you share with our audience what are you defining as attribution and what does it actually mean for Foursquare and your customers? Well, attribution is a causal model. We're trying to figure out whether an, uh, being exposed to an ad actually causes someone to change their behavior. And the behavior that Foursquare knows about that we specialize in 
is whether you actually visited a store. So Foursquare doesn't look at whether you clicked on stuff. It doesn't look at you know what websites you visited or even really what purchases you made, although we have some of that data in there. But our specialty is, can I get uh, people to go into my stores? And that's what attribution is. We're trying to figure out uh, whether an ad causes someone to visit stores versus is just correlated to going to stores. It's the whole causation versus correlation thing, which is very difficult to tease out. And Absolutely. Could... <laughs> um, and so why, why is attribution so difficult? So you mentioned obviously correlation versus causality. Causal models yeah. are quite difficult to build. Just period, right? Not even yeah. just in machine learning models. Um, but what are some other reasons that attribution is so difficult from a technical standpoint? Uh, well, um, there are a lot of factors that go into whether, uh, you know, human behavior. And it's really complicated. Um, and any model that we build is going to be an oversimplification, you know, a huge oversimplification of reality. So, you know, you say, well, I, you know, I, I'll use a, a chain as an example. I'll use Starbucks as an example um, because you know, Starbucks isn't a client of ours, but it's one that everybody, you know, <laughs> understands. And so, yes. yeah, so it's like, okay, I'm targeting people who are around the same age range that go to Starbucks. I'm targeting people who, uh, you know, have a little extra income and go to Starbucks in the morning. So they're already going to a large extent. So it's like, in what, in what way did my ad cause them to go? And in what way were I just, was I just targeting people who are already going to go to Starbucks? And there's always another step you can take. So it's like, well, maybe I'll correct by what city they're in, or maybe I'll try to correct by age and gender, or maybe I'll correct by whether, you know, they go to coffee shops in general. And this is just an infinite process. You can, you know, go on and on and on. And also, you know, also how those features interact with each other. Um, they could act with each other in an almost infinite number of ways too. So um, it's, it's just a constant, you know, trial and error in sort of figuring out what features matter and what attributes matter and what we want to correct for the most. Um, another problem is that's related is that oftentimes it, if you're not careful, you're just measuring targeting and you're optimizing for targeting. So I want to target people who are going to Starbucks anyway. Well, that's obviously not good from a business perspective. You're not, you know, you're just, um, you know, the way I think about it is someone's in the store and they're about to swipe their credit card and then somebody runs over to them, whispers in their ear, buy a cup of coffee. And then they swipe and then that person, you know, cheers like, hey, I get credit for that. And, you know, <laughs> pay me. Uh, so <laughs> you want to make yeah, that's sure. Just that that's the game Google that's, and Facebook play, right? They're both like, the oh, yeah, they, we, we drove that guy to click on your ad. So you get to pay both of us. And you're like, no. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> and then, then the third problem is that just the data in general is very noisy. You know, everywhere in the chain there's, uh, of, of data, there's noise that, um, you know, uh, that shuffles things around a little bit. And, you know, when you have a lot of noise in the data, it's always very difficult to separate out the signal from the noise. So, you know, for example, when we get the information on who saw the ads, well, there's there are errors in that, you know, there's even fraud in that, like, you know, maybe mm -hmm. people, some groups say so-and-so saw the ad when they didn't, you know, mm -hmm. you try to, you, you try to figure out, you know, which groups of users are actually the same person or the same family, lots of errors in that. Um, on every level of the technology, you can imagine every level in the chain, it introduces errors and, you know, you can't take, 
it, it's it's a lot of work to take all of them into account, and um, you know you're always finding more sources of error. So, and and it's a it, it, some people have said that it's also an adversarial problem. So if somebody gets really good at attribution, then there's somebody else waiting in the wings to take advantage of the fact, to take advantage of some you know, feature you didn't correct for to try to optimize for that when really they're not helping the businesses in the end. Mm. So attribution has always been a problem. What have been the historic ways that people have attempted to either correct these errors at all these different levels of the technology or attempt to mitigate them in some way or even just use some other more novel technique? What historically has been done to solve this problem? Uh, well, I think one of the best ways to do it is to actually do a controlled experiment um, where you, uh, you, know, you show a certain group of people the ad and then you have another group of people where you don't show them an alternative ad, but instead you just, you know, let the bidding go to someone else. And so what happens there is you can actually compare the two groups and it's pretty fair. The sources of error will be the same on both sides, so long as it's random and you can uh, measure, I think the most effectively, whether your ad is actually working or not. Um, but we don't do that. And the problem with that is, uh, well, first of all, you have to be on a particular platform that allows that. And mm -hmm. oftentimes we're measuring attribution after the fact. So we can't even, you know, we can't even do that. But also mm -hmm. it's very costly for these companies. You know, they want their ad to go out to as many people as possible. And then when they say, okay, but you're going to hold back a certain group and they're not going to see it, then it's like, you know, we can't afford to do that. We have to, uh, you know, maximize our ad budget. So there's always that tension there. And I would say, you know, if you can do a controlled experiment, uh, go for it. But if you can't, uh, then there are these other techniques that we're working on. So the technique that um, we had most recently uh, that we recently replaced was a very good technique, uh, but I'll talk about why we replaced it in a, in a second. And that's called one-to-one -one matching. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, we don't have a controlled experiment. But we do know, know who saw the ad. And so we construct a control group uh, that is demographically identical to the exposed group. So we started with five attributes. It's age, gender, um, your recency statistics. So you know, how long ago you, you're put in buckets as to how long ago you visited in the past, your DMA, essentially your city. And the fifth one is the language that you speak. Um, and so one, one problem that you can see already is all of those introduce, all, all of those signals have some error. Like we don't know everyone's gender and age uh, exactly. Um, and so, so the error there mostly just missing values or do you also sometimes get incorrect values? Both, both. Mm -hmm. um, the missing values for age and gender, we try to impute, you know, uh, we have a whole other uh, ML algorithm for that. Um, but so everybody, the way I think about it is like everybody who's seen the ad kind of gets a buddy and their, their buddy is demographically identical to them on like all Like a digital five. twin. Yeah, yeah. And so it's like, how much would you have visited had you not seen the ad? Well, we look at how much your buddy visited. Hmm. And so uh, it's, it's pretty good. It corrects for those five things. Uh, but we noticed several limitations of it, which is why we replaced it. Uh, right. One limitation is that, you know, we could have missing data. We have imputed data. So it's essentially for a lot of people, we don't know their gender. We just know, hey, 
there's a 70% chance this person's a female, there's 30% chance they're a male, you know, can we use that better than, you know, just randomly choosing 70-30 or trying to pick the largest one? Mm -hmm. And also, um, you know, uh, a second problem is that we can't add more features to it. So not everyone's going to have a match. You know, you might not have a buddy that's exactly the same as you. And it's like, well, I want to also match on whether you have an iPhone or an Android. So I want to match an Android user to an Android user, an iPhone to an iPhone user. But then that cuts your potential number of matches in half. And so the more you do that, you get, you know, a version of the curse of dimensionality. And, you know, the number of matches goes down and down, and then you can't do it anymore. And then the third problem is that, you know, we have this huge panel of, uh, of location data that we use to do attribution. I think it's 13 million users in the US. And we're going to be throwing it, most of it away for this one-to-one -one model where we have a small number of people who saw the ad and then a small control group of buddies and then the rest of it is kind of discarded. And then what we have is a, uh, actual, uh, uh, um, an actual visit rate for the exposed group a expected visit rate for the control group, and then you have a, a fraction. Um, you have a fraction of, you know, hey, uh, actual visits over expected visits, and that fraction, you know, represents the lift. But the issue is each side of the fraction is a count, and count data is, you know, uh, we imagine that it's generated by an actual rate of visitations. So that's like a Poisson distribution, and that generates some uh, uncertainty. So you have the numerator is an uncertain value. You have the denominator is an uncertain value. And then when you divide them together, you get an answer with an even larger um, with an even larger error, you know, error bounds. Right. And so the idea is if we can have a machine learned control group, if we can reduce the error bounds on the denominator, we can reduce the error bounds in the whole thing. Okay. And so the, so essentially what the denominator is doing, the control group is doing, the insight is that's just your expected visits, um, you know, given that you didn't see the ad. And so we realized, hey, this is just a machine learning problem. It's to, you know, we can, uh, you know, insert our data into a machine learning model and try to say, okay, for a given person, for all the features about them, you know, what is their propensity on any given day to visit the chain? And uh, the good thing about that is, well, first of all, it reduces the error bounds in the denominator, like I said, but also it can take into account any feature that we'd like. So mm -hmm. now we have like 500 features that we throw in there and we're adding more. Um, and uh, the third benefit is that it could take into account the uncertainty of the features we have. So if we don't know exactly, you know, what gender you are, but we have some probability distribution coming out of another model. Well, we could take that probability distribution as an input and it could actually use that data rather than just trying to impute it. So, so we saw those three benefits and we saw that this is a technique that's being used in a few other places and uh, we decided to go for it. And uh, we just launched, you know, a couple months ago. Yeah, so since your launch and your addition of all these 500 new features, have you observed that certain features that you weren't tracking in your original five for your sort of digital twin matching system are actually very impactful or have a lot of predictive value? Yeah, yeah. So 
one that has a lot of predictive value that it actually was in our original system, but it was um, recency, whether you've been there in the past. But uh, the one-to-one the -one matching only had three buckets. It was, have you been there in the last 30 days? Have mm -hmm. you been there in the last 60 days? Or have you, you know, not been there, been there in the last 60 days? And so everyone was put in those three buckets and your control group buddy got matched in one of those three buckets. And we were like, you know what? We can now... Uh, we can have way more buckets and we could also look at frequency rather than recency. And it turns out those features are very predictive, mm. which makes sense. You know, how often have you gone in the past or not um, is, uh, is a big one. And so we're still trying to look through, you know, the rest of the data to determine um, which features are important. I mean, one of the interesting things is we have a hundred of these running a day. And so every chain, or every group of venues has a slightly different set of features. And so it's, yeah. I, I've never seen this before where we have all, it's always like, well, find your hyperparameters. And it's like, no, I can't do it uh, exactly. Cause if I find my hyperparameters on one model. It might not be the same for the other mm -hmm. 99. So uh, trying to analyze all 100 at once, is actually a very interesting problem, which we haven't d dug into yet. But you know, another interesting one is what apps people have on their phone. Mm. That can be predictive on where you go. Okay. Uh, you, I think you can only get that on Android, right? Uh, or do well, you get that information so on iPhone as well? Yeah, no. So for us, it's not. Uh, we're not getting it from from that. We're getting. So we have a a Pilgrim SDK is what we call it is embedded in some other uh, apps in the whole app ecosystem, mm -hmm. and essentially it's it's only in apps where it really helps the consumer experience for that app. So for example, it's in. Um, uh, it's in SnipSnap, which is a coupon company. It's in TouchTunes, whatever. So. We have a bunch of apps giving information, uh, feeding information into our panel. And mm. it's those apps, which I don't know exactly how many there are. There are maybe 10 that we can track. I see. So what, what are you learning about what other apps people have on their phones? Well, it's, it's not, it's just, you know, what is the source of the data? So um, if, you know, if it's someone who's using a couponing app, then they might behave one way. If it's someone who's using a music app, they, you know, a jukebox app, they might behave another way. Or if it's someone who uh, uses a, a travel app, you know, they might behave a third. It makes sense that those people would, you know, tend to go to slightly different places. Makes sense. And so you mentioned you have to build a slightly different model for every single restaurant and venue because their features are going yeah. to differ and their user distribution is going to differ. Have you noticed some interesting patterns in terms of what features matter more for certain types of venues? Oh, that's interesting. I, you know, that's one thing that we, we kind of have been taking it on a case by case basis right now. So that's a, uh, uh, further area of, of study for us. But, uh, I, I think that, um, one thing that has been interesting to me is that age and gender is such a big focus in the industry. Like everyone wants to correct for age and gender, mm -hmm. but there are a lot of, a lot of cases where it doesn't seem to matter all that much, um, unless that chain is particularly, uh, particularly, you know, um, targeted, at a particular gender or a particular age, but if but many of them are just more general. Like I said, we don't have Starbucks, but if we did, I would imagine that age and gender wouldn't be that much of a factor. You could think maybe certain ages go to Starbucks more than others, but the model would probably find other factors that uh, that out outweigh that.
Indeed, I think marketing has been trying to find more behavioral data. Like, so rather than looking at the customer demographics, looking at their psychographics and their jobs to be done. And you already mentioned one of these, which is the apps that you use is a type of behavioral data. Are there other behavioral features other than the apps that you've noticed have been useful? So like another one would be what categories of places you've been to before. So Mm. do you tend to go to gyms? Do you, have you been to uh, a hardware store? Have you been to, you know, a coffee shop at the last 30 days? So that's been really interesting. Um, And there are a few interesting things that we're going to want to add in, in the near term, which are like, what other chains have you been to before? And, you know, do you visit expensive restaurants or not? Um, All that stuff. I think we could throw in and uh, would provide really interesting insights. Yeah, I would love to talk about your sort of future development plans a little bit later. But for now, I wanted to get your advice. So obviously, this is a problem that almost every marketer has. And so for marketers that do have this offline component, they need to track whether their ads are really driving foot traffic. What is your advice for them to get set up with a better machine learning for attribution model? Well, I guess before we talk about machine learning, I would say, you know, try to determine whether you can run these, you know, real A-B test experiments or not, uh, you know, whether that's in your budget. You know, most people can't do it all the time, but it, uh, if you can, it's a good thing to do. Just get a sense of what's really working and what's not. Um, and I would say, you know, whatever service that you use, um, try to learn a little bit about the methodology that they're using and ask some good questions, uh, you know, whether they're using one-to-one or whether they're using a machine learning model. Um, and What kind of machine what, learning model? Like, so for example, right. if you're trying to suss out how sophisticated are these people, what are the machine learning models that you have discovered or the machine learning algorithms that you think are actually best suited for this specific type of attribution problem? Yeah, I mean... Uh, Often what we use is uh, logistic regression on just all our features. And that's a very common one for marketing data because uh, a lot of the times, you know, you have all of these, well, think of all the features that I mentioned, right? They're kind of just, they're sort of just floating out there. They're not really connected with each other. They're not, it's not image recognition. It's just a lot of different features that, you know, some of them, can cause a little bump in visits. Some of them cause a little decline in visits and you sort of want to add them all up and maybe have some cross terms to determine whether some features are, uh, you know, interact in some, some strange ways. And so, you know, what we do is, uh, you know, we have a logistic regression where we're constantly adding more and more features and more and more cut points to it, but some other groups might have some different approaches. So I would just, you know, try to look at what the approaches are and try to understand, you know, why they chose that approach. Um, you know, we experimented with other models, we experimented with KNN, we experimented with, uh, you know, uh, random forests or boosted decision trees. And we found that they were all about equally accurate. And so it was like, well, <laughs> we can get more data. We can get more, um, we could do logistic regression more efficiently and we can get a lot of insights from it that we can get from the other ones. So let's just start with that. Um, But I I also think another thing to look at uh, that marketers don't ask about often enough is the idea of uh, uncertainty and um, confidence bounds. Um, And actually, interestingly enough, so we don't actually output a lift on the back end. What we output is our 
uncertainty are probability distribution overlift. So mm. it's, a, it's a graph. It's a probability distribution function. Now, I've never been asked to by anyone to see the probability distribution function. I'd love to. I was going to ask. I was, I was going to yeah. ask. I think most marketers don't even know what to do with a confidence interval. Like they don't right. know how to interpret that. No, they just want uh, a, 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 you know, a P value for statistical <laughs> significance, which I have a lot of criticism of. And they say it's significant. Good. We'll go with it. But that's not really a, that's not really a good way to go. I think a lot of these P values can be hacked. In other words, you can just, run simulations again and again and again until you get the answer that you want, which is not good. Mm -hmm. um, and then uncertainty bounds, people are afraid of uncertainty bounds and, and PMFs, uh, probability distribution or PDFs, probability distribution function, because, you know, they're like, well, it's uncertain. What am I going to do with that? Um, but I think like, you know, getting the, the uncertainty gives you a good idea of, what this information is telling you. Um, it gives you a good idea of, you know, hey, you know, what can I expect if I run this experiment again around where did we end up? Um, and I, I think people should think more about, you know, okay, if I'm not given an answer, but more of an uncertainty, but less uncertain than when I started, uh, how, can <laughs> I, how can I use that? And I think if people think about that, then, then they can get more uh, use out of it. Yeah. That does require a mentality shift for sure. Like thinking yeah. probabilistically is definitely a skill set that business and technology leaders should have, but it's often de-emphasized. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to go back to, to something that you had mentioned earlier about machine learning models. I think something that surprises people is that using the latest, fanciest deep neural network is not actually always going to produce the most accurate answers. And frankly, for scenarios where the data is very, very noisy, techniques like logistic regression are not only comparably accurate, but also so much simpler to build and a lot easier and more computationally efficient. Right, right. And in the case of the noisy data, what it allows us to do is, and I'm not, I'm open to, you know, expanding it into something a little more complicated in the future. You know, who knows, maybe in the future we'll have, hey, we can run it through a few different ones and, and see what happens. Uh, but um, when we have noisy data, when we have irregularities in the data, which we do a lot because, you know, it's not like there are uh, problems come up when there are features that we haven't corrected for yet. Um, and so, like I said, you know, it, even though we've added a lot more features, sometimes we're still not picking up the actual lift. Sometimes we're picking up, uh, the targeting or something else. And mm. so being able to see the weights of those features allows us to dive in and start to get an idea of what's going on. Um, and also there are a lot of optimizations that we can make as well, uh, which, which have helped us out a lot. Uh, we use a numerical library in Scala called Breeze uh, to uh, to train these models relatively quickly, and so we can we can do them pretty pretty fast. Um, Absolutely, have, iteration speed yeah. is key for production ML. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. So, yeah. what are some things that you're still not quite able to do yet with the machine learning attribution models you've built? And what are your plans for the next, say, six to 12 months in terms of new areas of innovation and research? Yeah, uh, I have a number of things. Well, first of all, we want to add more features because the more features that we have, the, you know, the less... Um, what we found is there aren't any, um, there aren't any silver silver bullet features that solve all our problems. But the more features we add, the less 
we can say, okay, maybe it's not correcting for X, maybe it's not correcting for Y because we have them in the model. So an interesting one that I want to put in uh, relatively soon is, hey, we know for these people, we know uh, we have an idea of where their uh, stops are clustered, which gives us an idea of where their home location is and where their work location is. So, you know, where's the nearest instance of the chain from their home and work? So is your is there a Starbucks within a hundred feet of where you work? That could be a really good feature. We um, are creatures of habit. We definitely go for things that are convenient and proximate. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of, you know, information we can glean from their past behavior. You know, like I said, what types of places have they visited in the past? So all that is interesting. Oh, another one is, you know, trying to estimate someone's income. I would love to have, you know, whether someone is a parent or not. Yeah. Um, because you know, or, or married or single, <laughs> um, yeah, no, all those things definitely affect um, affect user behavior. Um, now, in addition to in addition to adding features, um, there's also making better use of the features we have. So I mentioned cross terms, and this is something that logistic regression isn't good at, but you know, something that involves decision trees or is more nonlinear is very good at, which is trying to figure out, okay, what, uh, okay, like it's, I'm in New York, but I'm in New York and it's also a Sunday. And so is the answer to that just the New York, uh, you know, the New York increase in visits versus the Sunday increase in visits or do those two um, mm -hmm. features have some interaction with each other? Like a good example would be in New York and it's a particular date because then you can get like the weather um, on that date, which weather on its own might be a good feature as well. So I think that um, uh, cross terms uh, is a good area to work on. But another area that we're working on is just trying to get you know more insights from what we have as well. So we try to say, okay, among different groups of users, um, you know, what was the campaign effect on the different groups of users? So what were, what were, how did the campaign affect people from 18 to 24, for example? And uh, there, there is a communication issue with that because all the thing about uncertainty and all that still applies. And, um, you know, some of the issues that we're seeing, like we might see some city out there where it's like, okay, that city had 200% lift. Well, I don't believe that uh, ad could be that effective. So then mm. we start thinking, okay, what's going on here um, in these specific pockets? Um, so, or, you know, or negative lift happens sometimes. And that occurs when, right. I mean, that occurs when um, there's some targeting bias where, you know, the people, well, it could, could be for a number of different reasons. It could be that the people who, weren't targeted by this particular ad, were targeted by other better ads. Um, it could be that, um, you know, they're tending to target people who already visit a whole lot. And we, you know, for some reason, we're overestimating that. Or it could just be that it was a really bad ad and it pushed people away. Mm -hmm. That happens. Yeah, too. that's true. Not all PR is good PR. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, we really want to dive in the insights. And we have gotten some insights where, you know, we've been able to tell people, okay, next time you can target this group, and it looks like that group converted really well on your ad. But we've also found some irregularities that we know are probably not true, and we have to do a lot more research to try to suss out what the problem is. And I think it's just an ongoing, um, you know, true. ongoing battle. Machine learning never ends. Machine learning yeah. never ends. If you think yeah. you have your model deployed, no, you get to keep working. So I'm really glad you yeah. thought about these. 
but, but I think there's research areas. Yeah, I think there's a difference. Like if I were to build a classifier on what's a picture of a cat and what's not, I feel like there's a better stopping point there where it's like, this is pretty good. I can, I can yeah, get a cat. Yeah, at some point, like, like 98% but, accuracy, you're like, if yeah. it doesn't get it right, it's like just a weird picture of a cat. So yeah. kind of with, with marketing, and it's the same with like, you know, if you're uh, – predicting stock prices or things like that. There's always more areas and- It's a zero-sum zero game, right? There's a finite yeah. amount of attention. Every marketer is trying to get more sophisticated. The people competing with you are out of luck because yeah. they're not yeah. going to be able to compete with your machine learning capabilities. Yeah. So, and, then, and then finally, I wanted to add, there, there's some statistical techniques that are on our roadmap as well. We're looking into propensity weighting so we can see, you know, uh, that's sort of a interesting idea where it's like, okay, what's the lift for a panel versus the lift uh, in general versus can we kind of uh, compare that to, uh, to, to the population as a whole? And then another one is using Shapley values on several different campaigns. So it's like if you've been hit by two ads or more, who gets credit for that? And so those, oh, those yeah. are two other things that are on our roadmap for the next six to 12 months. I don't know if we'll get to everything I mentioned in the next six to 12 yeah. months, but I guarantee you we'll get to some. It's good to be aspirational. It's good yeah. to have a lot of plans and try to hit as many goals as possible. So thank you so much, Max. This was such a wonderful interview, full of details, full of practical advice. I'm sure that our listeners will have derived a lot of value from it. So thank you so much for coming on the AI for Growth series. Thanks a lot for having me. And uh, yeah, good luck, everyone. <laughs>